Let's turn this morning to the book of Job. Now, most of you are probably familiar at least with some of the book of Job, but uh, what you see with the book of Job is uh, in the beginning, you see this, uh, I don't know if you could say debate between uh, the Lord and Satan, and then you see also the friends of Job, and they're, they're debating with Job back and forth related to you know, what's going on in his life. And one of the things that I, I saw here, turn to chapter 7, and this is also in a few other places in Job. Job chapter 7, verse 20, and he says, that, Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? He's speaking to the Lord. And then he says, Why have you set me as your target? And in verse 21, why do you not pardon me? But the, the point I want to show you here is that Job questioned God, why? And I think that for the most part, Christians, somewhere along the line in their lives, question why. You know, a certain thing may come, a certain circumstance may, may be there and they're in it. And we question why. And the interesting thing, Job suffered all these different things and he asks why, but the Lord doesn't answer him. The Lord is silent through all this. And Job's friends, you know, we, we know the story. We know that they came and, and some of the things that they said. But if you go to chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all his adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. Well, they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and comfort him. So their desire, what they wanted to do, with, as far as Job was concerned, was, was good. They wanted to comfort him. They wanted to mourn with him. And verse 12, And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted up their voices and wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. And that is a sign of mourning, you know, for Job and his situation and what they saw. And then here is something quite, you know, I don't know. Verse 13, so they, they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. Now, how many people do we know that would come and sit down seven days and seven nights before us, with us, you know, in a situation like this. I mean, so these were friends, but their view of things, and that's what I want to look at today, their view and what their view was based upon. Because with each one, I haven't gotten this far in the book of Job in the class teaching downstairs, <clears throat> but I was looking at this and each one had their own view based upon a certain thing. And, you know, as I was looking at this, and, and this holds true with people in general, you know, whether they're Christians or not Christians. And hopefully, as Christians, you know, we have the advantage, and we do, especially if, we allow the Lord to renew our mind. If we're, we're allowing the Lord to work in us and to renew our mind, then 
hopefully what comes out is not based upon what we see with these three men. Even though they were friends of Job, and even though they, for example, they meant well, they sat with him for seven days and seven nights and said nothing. But whenever they begin to speak, that's when problems arose. And it wasn't a problem on their behalf. It was more of a problem on Job's behalf because Job knew where he was. And even though at a point he says, well, Lord, you know, I believe that I'm walking the right way, I'm paraphrasing, I believe I'm, I'm righteous before you and I've done nothing wrong, but if I've sinned, tell me, show me. Uh, and in these different things that Job, Job says that come out of his heart, you can see that you know, he's walking where he is to be, even though at times the pressure of the suffering in his life was so great. You know, we, none of us here can relate to that, none of us. But the pressure was so great upon him that he starts to, to say things like, you know, I cursed the day I was ever born. In other words, I wish I was never born, I wish I was dead. And I believe that Christians even say that in lesser difficulties, I wish I was dead. So in chapter 3 here, Job speaks, okay? And then in chapter 4, you have the first individual who speaks. And and of course, the book of Job, I I don't really have a real good handle of the whole thing, if you you understand what I'm saying. I'm kind of like going through it, and as I'm going through it, the Lord's starting to put things together there for me. Each one of them, except for the third fella, that Zophar, says something, and then Job says something. Then they go on the second time, Eliphaz and Bildad. Then they, the second time they address Job, and then Job, in between that, he says something. Then the third time, and it seems to me, now I, I, I can't, like I said, I'm not that far in the book, but it seems to me from what I've seen that each time they're becoming a little more forceful and strong with Job and what they say. And so in, in Ecclesiastes, it says this, for in many words, there is also vanity. So the Lord is not so much interested in all our words uh, as he is in our heart and our heart attitude. Now, there is a place of, for words. We know that uh, you can't minister, you can't teach without words. But the setting here isn't preaching. The setting is not teaching. The setting is a personal group amongst them sitting together and, and communing. And so um, in Job 5, let's go there. Job, Job 5, verse 3. Now, before we go there, let's go back to chapter 4, because this is... Chapter 4 and 5 is his first friend here. And, and by the way, I wasn't aware of this till I read a scripture in the latter part of Job. There, there's a fourth man, Elihu, I think his name is. And actually, he, he spends more time, he, he thinks like five or six chapters he's speaking. And he's the youngest of all of them. So probably they... Um, the oldest of all, the eldest of all, was Elihaz, the first one, and he spoke first. And then Bildad was the next as far as age-wise age and experience or whatever. 
and then the third, then this younger fellow toward the end. But in chapter 4, verse 8, Elihaz here accuses Job of sinning. Verse 8, even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You know, if you're going to accuse someone of sin, you better make sure what you're saying, and you better make sure that it's the Lord speaking through you. It's easy to look at someone else's life and someone that's going through suffering and say, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, and this is why this is coming upon you. And the book of Job, even though there, there are things here that are quite overwhelming, still the Lord did certain things here to benefit mankind in general for every generation. So when the Lord allows Satan to destroy Job's family, for example, still, you know, we can look at that and say, why would the Lord let that happen? But still, the Lord sees the beginning from the end, and he's going to see now every generation that's going to benefit by the writing of the book of Job. So there are things that are far, far beyond us, and this individual here, you know, he speaks, and, and we, we have the advantage of seeing it, seeing what happened. But even at that, it doesn't mean that we won't speak and say something similar. So they didn't have the Bible, they didn't have the example, they had, the, you know, the elders, the, the traditions or whatever that they, that they had in their society. They spoke, he speaks, and he accuses Job of sin. Now, in chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, and I want to read this. I have this here in the Amplified, but I'll read it first in, the, in New King James. I've seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I, I cur cursed his dwelling place. His sons are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no deliverance. Now, let me read this from the Amplified. For I have seen the foolish taking root, the outward prospering. But suddenly I saw that his dwelling was cursed, for his doom was certain. And this is, this is what he says also. His children are far from safety, involved in their father's ruin. They are crushed in the court of justice in the city gate, and there is no one to deliver them. And he, I believe he's relating this to what happened with Job's children. Now, I'll tell you what, before I was a Christian, I don't think I would have ever said something like that. We need to weigh our words. And this man comes out and he says these, and that's just two things, from one from both chapters, that he says directly to Job, you know, and he sees Job's suffering, he sees some of the things that happened to him, and he's going to draw upon something in his life to base his opinion on. And, and this, is, this is quite interesting. The basis, what is the basis behind what Eliphaz here says? Well, I believe it's in chapter 4, the verse we read, the first part, where it says, even as I have seen. So Eliphaz bases what he says here upon his experiences in life. See, his experience, his personal experience, that's where this is coming. Even as I have seen. So he saw certain things. He was able to, to look at situations or whatever in, in his lives, in the lives of other people or whatever. Now, 
What he says now is based upon his personal experience. Now, personal experience can be okay. But remember this, that personal experience should be based upon truth, not truth on personal experience. So you see the apostles in the New Testament, they experienced certain things, but it was based upon truth. It was based upon you know, their relationship with Jesus. See, but just an experience in and of itself is not something to base truth upon. And this man here is basing what he says upon the different experience, the things he has seen in his life as a, an elder or a leader or whoever, whoever he was. It doesn't really say who he was. So in Ephesians, it says this, If indeed you have heard him, meaning the Lord, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. You know, everything goes back to the Lord. Now, the Lord has shown me certain things in my life through various means, and I've experienced things. But, see, that has to be based upon truth. Just an isolated experience in a person's life, you can't base your whole you know, mode of thinking on one particular thing. Now, Elihaz, or Elihaz, I don't know how you pronounce his name, he says that Job's suffering is because of his sin. Now, he gives his advice. His advice is in chapter 5, verse 8. Now, each one accused Job, they base what they say on something, and then they give their advice. His advice is, verse 8, But as for me, I would seek God. And to God, I would commit my cause. Well, that's all well and good, and that's true. But he's saying that based upon his view of Job's life, and he's saying that, you know, hey, you've sinned. You know, you've caused this destruction to come upon your life. Your children have suffered and died because of the things that you've done, and so on and so forth. So he, he moves in this, this thinking of, okay, my experience is the basis for what I'm going to say. This is what I have seen in my life. Now, what you see in your life can be, if it's centered upon and founded upon Jesus Christ, can be true and accurate. Your experience, if it's based on truth, can be correct. But to base your experience alone without some foundation of truth there, can be error. And so that's where we see this, this individual. Now, the next fellow, so in chapter 6, Job speaks. Chapter 7, Job speaks. Chapter 8, uh, you come to this next man here, the second friend here, Bildad the Shuhite. And he answers, and he starts to, to talk. And he thinks, basically the same, but he thinks that Job should repent. Now, in chapter 8, he relates to what's happening to Job's, what's happened to Job's children as a result of their sin. Verse 4, if your sons have sinned against him, meaning God, he has cast them away for their transgression. Well, that's a pretty strong thing to say to an individual who's just lost 10, 10 of his children, all of his children. 
is bad enough if you're losing one child, but he loses 10 children. And even though, as I said before, they came to mourn and comfort him, the words that they speak are anything but comfort because they're not based upon truth. They're not based upon revelation from the Lord. They're based upon what the individual, you know, thinks, how they think. And, and, you know, the Bible says a lot about words. We'll look at one verse later. But it would do well for us, all of us, every one of us, to guard our words, what we say, because the Lord sees. So all this is going on, the Lord's watching all this. He doesn't intervene. He does nothing. He watches it. Now, he's going to give his righteous judgment at the end of the book, we know. But in the progression here, he doesn't intervene. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't you know, shed any light on anything that they say, including Job and what Job says. Job is just, as far as, you know, what's going on and what's, you know, as far as the Lord, he, he's just like, he's in the dark. He doesn't know. That's why he asks why. Now, I want to show you in chapter 8 what I believe is the basis for this individual, Bildad, the basis for his thinking. Verse 8, for inquire, please, of the former age. So he's talking about the past. And consider the things discovered by our fathers. He's talking about those that were, went before him. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are shattered. Well, I'll tell you what, if he says you know nothing, he probably should have just been quiet. Verse 10, Will they not teach you and tell you in utter, utter words from their heart? So his basis for what he says is tradition. You know, the tradition of the fathers, uh, the former generations, as he says, the past generation, the former age, the, the traditions, that, that which comes down. And now because of, of that, and he sees that and what have you, he's going to base what he says upon tradition. Now, in 1 Kings, you can turn to Matthew 15. I want to read a verse from 1 Kings here. This, is, this verse in 1 Kings is related to Solomon. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled in wisdom. Listen to this. Of all, he excelled the wisdom of all the men of the East... And the whole setting for the book of Job is the East. And so, so it says that Solomon, his wisdom excelled. So obviously there were those uh, of the East, these men that Job was dealing with, their forefathers, that had some understanding and had some wisdom. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and that excelled that. He had more than all of them. But nonetheless, there were some there that, that probably knew certain things. And in Matthew 15, verse 2 and 3, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? So, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, in particular the Pharisees, you know, they were interested in the traditions of men. And you see Jesus dealing with that thing all the time, the religious traditions that came down 
from their fathers, from you know, others that were leaders in, in their, their uh, religious system. And they held to that and made up and, and held to a lot of the traditions that had nothing to do, in many cases, with the Bible. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God because of your tradition? So Jesus came and he dealt with this thing in various religious leaders where they were clinging on to tradition, you know, before or more than the Lord or the commandments of the Lord. And, of course, we see that today. Tradition becomes, for many religious people, their anchor. It's not Jesus Christ. He's not the anchor. He's not the rock in some churches and some denominations. It's the traditions and the traditions that they go through on a weekly basis, that becomes their life, that becomes their anchor, that becomes their religion, that becomes their church. And so Jesus here deals with it. And, and this thing here, by the way, has never died. It's always been around. You see it from the apostles. It goes down generation after generation. And then you see Martin Luther, the Lord raise, raises him up to deal with the traditions in the church that they had that were very, very destructive. And you, you see the Reformation come out of that. And so the Lord seems to, to deal with that thing, you know, age after age after age. And, and today it's just as strong as it was back then. You get somebody in some of these, you know, major denominational churches, and, you know, they do their thing because the church says it. It has nothing to do whether it's based on the Bible or not. You know, I just told somebody this week that, you know, I believe the Bible. And it was in reference to some of the things that they were doing based upon what their church said. And so you always have that thing around. Now, tradition, you know, what is tradition? And I actually looked, looked this up, and I wanted to, to see. I mean, we all have our ideas, and, and I think we basically know what it is. But I thought this was pretty good. It says, customs and practices from the past which are passed on as accepted standards, stand, standards of behavior for the present. There's one verse, I, I don't know, it's in the gospel somewhere, where, where uh, it, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, and he talks about them cleaning the outside of the cup. Then he goes on and he says, well, you know, you're more interested in the outside of the cup than what's on the inside of the cup. And what he was saying there is that they're more interested in, in what's going on out here in their traditions and, you know, you know, all that. And they're not so interested in what's on the inside in their heart and in their life. And so that becomes something that is quite common today. So this man here, this Bildad, let's go, let's go back to chapter 8. Oh, I do have that one verse here in my notes here. This is in Luke. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. See, so it doesn't matter how religious they are. If their focus is the outward, they will never have the correct view or the correct judgment. So this man here, if he is going to base what he's saying upon tradition, 
and not upon some revealed truth, then what he says is going to be flawed. And that's what we, we see you know, with him in verse 5. Now, this is, this is Bildad's advice to Job. Each one has, his, has their advice. If you would earnestly seek God, sounds like the other fellow. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, now when he says that, if you were, that means he doesn't believe he is. Surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Let me read verse 6 from another translation. And if you are pure and and live with integrity, he will surely rise up and restore your happy home. So once again, you see the basis for which you know, they're, they're operating is not something from God. It's not a revealed thing, a revelation from God. It's based on one is experience, the next one's tradition. And that becomes a faulty thing to base your words upon. See, I would much rather have the Spirit of God directing me into whatever, and, you know, there's been times when I have had opportunity to say things, and what I mean is that the situation arose for me to say something, and I guess it's more me. I'm more of a reserved individual. And I wasn't sure to say something at that point or not, and I didn't have anything in particular as far as an unction or as far as hearing the still small voice, and so I didn't say anything, and I let it go. You know, we can say things, and I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter. We can say things that cause... It's almost like you take a snowball and you, you throw it down a big hill, you know, like you see over in the, the areas of the Alps and different places. Even just a small bit of snow rolling down the hill can start an avalanche, and that's what we can do. And, and Jesus talks about that, and James talks about the power of the tongue. You know, it's easy to let it go. It is. But it's not so easy to... You know, just, uh, you know, some people use the phrase, bite your tongue. Well, I don't think there's a much, as much of that going around as should be. <laughs> okay, now, Ecclesiastes says, A fool's voice is known by multitude of words. Okay, let's go to the, the third fellow here, chapter 11. So, now he, this Bildad, he speaks in chapter 8. And then Job speaks in chapter 9, chapter 10, and then now the third friend speaks. Now, after you come to this first round, then they start again. And it goes, the second round goes so many chapters again. And then, then you have the third round for the first two, and then the third, the third fellow, the Zophar, just drops out that he doesn't say anything. It's interesting how that through this, that they don't grasp that their, their words are coming out and they're not producing. Maybe that's not a way to say it. It's, they're falling to the ground like 
uh, it says of um, Samuel. His, none of his words fell to the ground. Why? There was a reason for that. How many of my words, and it's not, I don't believe that's necessarily talking about just normal conversation. You want some orange juice with breakfast. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with, with life, spirit life, and our words related, I believe, to that. So that when it comes to certain things, it's just normal to just talk and, you know, what have you. Of course, there, there's, there has to be some uh, reservation on that also. It's related to spirit and life. And when it came to the life of Samuel, none of his words fell to the ground as far as when the Lord was coming upon him to, to speak. You know, and remember, Samuel went from town to town and he established these schools. They called the School of the Prophets. He went there and he ministered. And, you know, after he ministered, probably some of those came up to him and talked to him. But yet, when it came to whatever was spirit in life, and it and doesn't necessarily mean just the words in the Bible, speaking spirit in life, when it come, came to that, his words did not fall to the ground. So the basis behind Samuel speaking was you know, the spirit of God. You know, as far as that going out, from him and touching or ministering or doing something in someone else's life, that, that was always, you know, correct. Well, what a place to be. What a place to be. What, you know, what, you know, a, a goal to shoot for. And, you know, we can speak many times and speak spirit in life. And then we might turn and say something and then our word, you know, causes some problem. You know, I just don't want to say, you know, we need to, you know, have the Lord show us and teach us. Well, it's true. It's true. And I think it comes down, this is my opinion, based, I'll base it on Galatians. I think it comes down to, you know, walking in the Spirit. And see, walking in the Spirit is not just for church. Did you know that? It's not just for church. It's not just for a Bible study. You know, walking in spirit is to be a thing that you do. And so if, if we are in God and, and we are doing that, then he teaches us. See, no, no one is perfect as far as always getting 100% of, 100 of everything, everything, right? 100% of your doctrine, all that. Nobody's 100%, I don't believe. So we all have room to learn. See, what is a disciple? What's the word disciple mean? Learner. So that to me is saying that if I'm going to walk as a disciple, that I'm going to be learning. And I don't think the learning ever stops. The more you have, the more you see, the more the Lord shows you, the more you hear, the more you need from him as far as a heart to be taught so that you can learn and learn the right way. So here we come to this 
third friend of Job. Now, do you think that these, these three fellows were Job's friends? I believe they were. I really do. They wouldn't come and sit with him for seven days and seven nights if they didn't like Job and there wasn't something there. Uh, so that's really not the issue. They were his friends. And each one tried to help, but as I said before, their help had a basis that was uh, something other than what it should have been. So now in chapter 11, let's read uh, the first uh, six verses. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? Now he's talking about the things that Job said. So it, it seems to me that you know, the Lord says later on that Job was saying the right things pertaining to God. But these three did not have ears to hear that because of their, their thinking and that what their thinking was based upon. And so he says here, should not the multitudes of your words, Job, be answered? So he's not, he's not hearing really what Job is saying. He's not hearing his heart. Instead, they're thinking he sinned. And, you know, if you think a person has sinned and they're out there, you know, they're on the side somewhere, then what they're saying is not going to register with you because, you know, you've made up your mind that they've sinned. So because of that, they, they couldn't receive what he's saying and didn't perceive that the Lord was in what he was saying. See, can you perceive the Lord in something that someone says to you? Now, people might say something to you all the time. And I, I remember many times of being at work, not many times, but more than a couple, where you know people say this, people say that, and it goes on and on. You know how it is in the workplace. And an individual said something, and as soon as they said that, I, I heard the Lord in what they said. I knew that that was, that was the Lord. Everything else they said for you know, two hours or four hours or whatever it was just was nothing. But see, can you and I discern if someone is saying something, is it the Lord or is it not? See, what are we going to base that on? We're going to base that upon our own opinion. Well, we better not. We need to base that on him. And so here, he said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? It should a man full of talk be vindicated. Should your empty... This is, this is pretty strong stuff. Should you, Job, should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you have said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes, Lord. So that's, he, he, this man here, Zophar, is picking apart the words that Job has said and basically saying that you are totally wrong. But, oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. Well, God spoke later, but he didn't open his lips against Job. He opened his lips against these guys. Verse 6, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would, uh, they would double your prudence. 
Know therefore that God uh, exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Now, that's pretty strong. Very strong words. So, you know, why, why are these things in the Bible? See, these things are written for our admonition. Not just your admonition, you know, my admonition, everyone's admonition. That we would see it and learn and direct our hearts in the correct way. Now, it says in, and you know this verse, in Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So as far as this individual, Zophar, he bases what he says, I believe, on presumption. He presumes that he is right and Job is wrong. See, just because you and I can form thoughts in our mind does not mean that our thoughts are always right and accurate. You know that. You're not always right. So he presumes that he is right in what he's saying, and he presumes that Job is incorrect in everything he's saying because it doesn't line up with me, what I think. Man, is that, is that so much like today or, or what? You could get 10 people around and start talking about something and everybody has their own opinion about something. Well, you know, there's a verse. Let me show you this if I can find it. I know it's in the back chapter here somewhere. I just stumbled across this this morning. Probably not going to be able to find it. Oh, here it is. Okay, I'll read this for you. So this is the fourth fella that speaks, and he's the younger fella. He answered and said, I am younger in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. <laughs> but now I'm going to speak and give you my opinion for six chapters. <laughs> oh, Wow. Better to be quiet, I think. Uh, that's my opinion. <laughs> Give you my opinion. <laughs> Better to be quiet. So what's my opinion based upon? What I think or what's in the Bible? I'll show you in a minute. But it, this is really something. So he gives his opinion of the situation. Look at verse 12. An empty-headed person won't become wise any more than a wild donkey can bear a human child. That's his opinion of Job. Let me read this from another translation. Stupid men will start being wise when, wise donkey, when, when wild donkeys are born tame. <laughs> That's his opinion. <laughs> That's what he says. So I want to just show you now, as I said, his, his basis is presumption. Now he's going, out of, out of his opinion here, he's going to give Job advice. Okay, now let's go to verse 13. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, toward God, if iniquity were in your hand and you would put it far away and would not let uh, wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely... You know, you could you know, lift up your face and so on and so forth. So, you know, that's his opinion. 
And that's what he, he thinks Job should do. Well, you know, this guy is suffering in every possible way a person can suffer. He's suffering mentally. He's suffering emotionally because his, his children are dead. His wife basically shuns him and his relationship. And then he's suffering physically with boils all over his body. You know, he, he's suffering. And then you have this man and the, the two others, and they're not consoling Job at all, and they're not helping the situation. His, let me read this verse from another translation. Put your heart right, Job. That's what he says. You know, get, get your heart right. Reach out to God. Put away evil and wrong from your home. Now, in the beginning, they say, uh, I'll, I'll read this. If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? That's what his three friends say. And then, what I see here in these chapters is that they are trying to justify the ways of God to him. And even though they're, they're, they're totally missing it, they're trying to justify the ways of God, why he's doing what he's doing, when that's not true at all. Completely untrue. So his statement here, this Zophar, is not based upon truth again. Comes back to that. Now, there's a verse here that says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Well, that was my opinion. He who restrains his lips is wise. Now, here's a verse we know. Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He said, That every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. So I looked up this word idle in three different sources to see if I could really, you know, see what this word is meaning. Uh, it means hurtful, wicked words, bearing false witness. It means careless. It means words that accomplish nothing or a word that does nothing. And this, this one here I thought was one of the better ones. It was from Vine's Expository Dictionary. It says this, Vine states that uh, an idle word is like faith without works. It's dead. I thought that was such a good illustration. An idle word. It's like faith without works. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't click. It doesn't go together. It doesn't move right. It's just not, it's not what it should be. And Jesus said that we will be judged by our idle words. That, to me, is very strong. And for me, personally, uh, gives me hope in being silent. <laughs> you know, we need to watch what we say. We need to watch you know, how we treat people and what we say to people, whoever, whoever they are. And then Ecclesiastes says this, for in many words there is vanity. And then he goes on, he says, but fear God. See, that's a key. So if you fear God, I fear God, and I believe what Jesus said, that he's going to judge these words that are idle, that they, they don't produce anything, no spirit, no life. They produce nothing. That's what we're seeing with these three men. There's no spirit and life in the things that they're saying. It's just their opinions. And 
if you get 50 people together, you will have 50 opinions. So opinion is not what really matters, but it's the Spirit of God and, and His moving and working and His words. That's what, what's important. That's what really matters. And, and we need to you know, be able somehow, some way, and, and I believe this is a, a learning experience over, over years and years and years, that, that the Lord start to communicate with our spirit in some way that we will know it's, it's Him. So, you know, He will show you and teach you so that, you know, you will be able to maybe hear something or distinguish something that you know now that's him or it's not him. And so that I, that I believe is critical for us in our walk. For us to walk in the spirit, you know, the way we should, the way it says in Galatians, you know, it will entail some hearing and, and the development of hearing. And that's not to say that we won't miss something. We can miss it. But, you know, that whole thing, walking in the spirit, is a learning process. And if we avail ourselves to him, and we, you know, we want to know, we want to walk, we want to hear, I believe in the course of time, you know, we make the correct decisions and what have you, that he develops that a little at a time until, until we have something that the Lord can communicate in a way and we'll, we'll know and we'll understand.